you believe what you just sang, let's talk to the Lord. Lord, we need you. And as we state our need, we don't, we fight to make sure that our needs don't become bigger than the one we need. So oftentimes, oh God, we confess that what we're focused on as our need, the gap in our life, the hole, the issue, the, the item that has driven us to our knees and made us aware of how dependent we are can sometimes, Lord God, get in the way of how we see you. I think about the great psalmist who said, I look to the hills, now where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord. Lord God, I refuse to let my need become the biggest thing in my view or the biggest thing in my life. Lord God, I need you. Help me, Lord God, in my prayer and in my practical life to always finish the sentence. I don't just need, but I need you. Lord God, we need you this morning. And as our king, we allow you to define fully how you satisfy the need. Uh, we hand our hearts over to you. We hand the service over to you, oh God. And um, I need you in a very particular way. I want to learn from you even as I teach. Open my heart, open my eyes, oh God. Allow me to behold wondrous things out of your word, even in the preaching moment. Lord God, remove from me, remove from us anything that might be obscuring our ability to fully hear from you. Any idols, any issues in our lives that have become preoccupations and distractions that, are, that, that their voice is making a lot of noise, they're taking up a lot of emotional real estate. They're interrupting our ability to hear from you, to be focused on you. Lord God, help us in this moment. We need you to quiet the distractions. We need you to put our needs in their place. We need you to help us to be dialed in. We need you this morning, oh God, because we are a church that, Lord God, is on a course to put the kingdom first, and we need you, king. Redeem our agenda. Speak to us as only you can. You understand what is happening at each individual address represented in these pews, and even for those that are dialed in online. Lord God, would you allow there to be an encounter that would clearly be noted to each one of us as a demonstration of your spirit. Deliver us, Lord God, from great messages and bring us, O oh God, to an encounter with a great God. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So it's the first of the year and it is only fitting that we kind of put first things first. As a local church, you've often heard us say, or perhaps you are hearing for the first time if you are a guest, we exist to display the reconciling hope of the gospel. And what we mean by that is both when people come in among us as a local church, we hope that vertically they see a people whose hearts are aligned with the Lord in relationship, having fully trusted in the completed work of Jesus Christ on the cross. We are his and he is ours. We know him as father, we know him as savior, we know him as God, we know him as king. Vertical reconciliation, we have been reconciled to God. We also hope that what people would see when they're coming among us is this beautiful array of uh, not just diversity, but also reconciled diversity, where all these different people from different 
corners of the world and different corners of the community of all these different ethnic and economic types are sitting in the same pews together and not just tolerating one another, but doing life as brothers and sisters. We are not just reconciled to him, but we are also reconciled to one another. We want to be a church that displays the reconciling hope of the gospel. While we do that, we also want to be a church that is not taking for granted who we are, but we are constantly charging forward and putting the kingdom first, and therefore, we want to make disciples who are growing in the, as a, while on, amen, you got it, amen, and hallelujah, yes, we can punctuate that with some hallelujah, because we need that. Um, If you have your Bibles with you, we're continuing our series entitled Kingdom First, and we are now focused on Acts chapter 6. Jesus told his disciples and all of us by extension and application in Matthew chapter 6, verse 33, seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. In other words, whatever it is that they need, not allowing those needs to become an impediment to their focus on the Lord or become reasons that they worry, that if they would focus on the kingdom first, that God would give them exactly what they need. And so today we're going to see yet another episode of exactly how God fulfills fills that promise in the hearts and minds of people who would indeed put the kingdom first. If you've already gotten your Bibles dialed in or turned over, whether you're a page person or whether you're a device person, or whether you just kind of came empty-handed hoping that we had a screen, we got one of those too. So here we go. Acts chapter 6, beginning with verse 1. It says, now in these days, when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. One of the uh, key uh, ministry functions of the church at that time as they were gathering is when they had widows amongst them, those who had no economic support base, the church had taken on its responsibility to distribute food daily to widows, and that's what is happening here. And there was a complaint that arose in the midst of that, uh, that work. So verse 2, and the 12 summoned the full number of disciples and said, it is not right that we should give up the preaching of the word, to, uh, uh, the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the Holy Spirit and of wisdom, and we will appoint them to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And they said, uh, and what they said pleased the whole gathering, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Prochorus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenius, and Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch. These were set before the apostles, and they prayed and laid their hands on them, and the word of God continued to increase, and the number of disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. It was late in the summer of 1996. Actually, you could probably call it fall, but you know how Georgia weather is. It was still summer. It was, December, it was September of 1996. Um, me and a group of my friends just immediately following the Olympics, uh, piled into my Ford Explorer with a couple of loads of unwashed laundry and a weight bench and some other stuff, selected shoes that we couldn't live without, and we moved to the city of Detroit. When we moved to Detroit, we got out and we got there, and we recognized that we were almost in a foreign land. Detroit was so much different from the place that we had grown up in Atlanta. And Detroit, which had, in its heyday had been a top 10 city, was at the time experiencing some decline. 
It was one of the first times in Detroit's history that its numbers were ebbing eerily close to dipping below a million people living inside the city. Detroit had also at that time elected its youngest mayor in history, a man by the name of Kwame Kilpatrick. Kwame Kilpatrick was doing a radio address, fielding questions from some of the citizens of Detroit who had begun to complain about some of the things that were happening in the city. And some of their complaints were about the construction. Having been from Atlanta, a place that was laden with all kinds of construction activity because we had just improved our roadways and increased our infrastructure and other things in preparation for the Olympics, I was leaning in and something really stood out to me. My antennas really went up when he answered this one particular question. He said, have you ever been to a city that has something going on? Have you been to LA? Have you been to New York? Have you been to DC? Have you been to Atlanta? Have you been to Chicago? Have you been to a city that is growing and has a great deal of activity? And what you'll notice in those kinds of cities is that they all have something in common. They have traffic. They're constantly about the business of increasing their capacity and they're widening their roads and they're building new stuff. In the background and in the landscapes, you will always see cranes and you will always see cones and you'll see lanes being expanded and roads being renewed in various ways. Have you seen cities that are growing? I thought that was a very pertinent address and I never forgot it even all those years when I look today at today's text because I see something similar. And that is, I think it is common to say that churches, or excuse me, cities that are growing have challenges, but I think even more importantly, when you look at today's text, you see that growing churches are also going to have challenges. Growing churches are going to have challenges. Why? Well, number one, by virtue of our very existence, the church is understood or known to be the ecclesia. We are the called out ones. We are this group of people that have been called out from the masses, but called out on what terms and conditions. We have not been called out to go abscond in some hills tucked away, churning our own butter, milking our own cows, not wanting the rest of society to come in, making our own sweaters, and, and, and wearing wood shoes and refusing to let our kids have technology. That's not what we've been called out to do and be. According to the scriptures, we have been called out on these terms. We have been called out first and foremost by God from the masses to believe in a particular message. Have you heard the message that we've been called out to believe? The message is we believe that the God of heaven, the king of the universe, came to earth and clothed himself in human form, lived among us, showed us how to do life, died for us, and then was raised in bodily form. And the Bible says that that kind of belief is foolishness to those that are perishing. Growing churches are going to have challenges, number one, because we have been called out from among the masses. Number two, because we have been called to believe something that those that are perishing believe is foolishness. But here's what else causes growing churches to have challenges. We have been called to not only believe that, but to be so bold that if we're filled with the Spirit, we are evangelizing and socializing that. We are inviting other people to believe this same message that they at one point in their lives would consider to be foolish. Can you see how growing churches might have challenges? Now, also understand that those same people who go out and socialize or evangelize this message that the world might consider to be a foolish message, 
When we come and respond to that message, our mess doesn't immediately go away. We bring with ourselves everything that we were previously, and God is actively cleaning it out. What we brought to God is a dependency that he would fix it because we recognize that we cannot fix ourselves. And so growing churches are going to have challenges because we are countercultural in our very nature and existence. We should not shudder at the idea of challenges. I believe that we also, as a local church, if we are growing, should expect challenges. Not just by virtue of our DNA as the ecclesia, but look at who we say we want to be. A church that displays the reconciling hope of the gospel. We are suggesting that we are uniquely positioned to be a church where people who are different, ideologically different from a political perspective, ethnically different, and economically different, can sit on the same pews and not just tolerate each other, but love each other each other and call one another brother and sister and live together in that way. That is going to propose a challenge. It'll propose a challenge for the world who won't believe that it's authentic and who will seek to poke the bear to see if it's real, but it also pose a challenge for us that are those that are trying to live out this particular kind of truth. And so the title of today's message is Table That, Table That. It is an appeal to every single one of us to table those things that are not a top priority, but at the same time, recognize that growing churches are going to have challenges, and there are certain things that need to be tabled, that need to be set aside for a moment while we focus on what is the main thing. I believe that as we learn this, I hope, and here's the goal, I would hope that for, for those of us who are members of Gospel Hope and First Baptist Churches, as we are on the eve of a merger, I would hope that we as a people would grow to view our traffic cones as part of the great challenge that is going to increase our capacity. Notice what traffic cones and new infrastructure do in a city that is rapidly growing. It doesn't equal a change in direction, it equals an increase in capacity. We're adding new lanes that allow us to get from here or there and accommodate more volume. Does anybody remember when you could go from Wesley Chapel to West End in nine minutes? I do. Those days are gone. But I have a choice. Do I allow that to frustrate me? Or does that fill my heart with wonder at the, just the, the, the massive number of people that have come into our city and how much opportunity it represents and the opportunity that it creates? For us as a local church, I would hope if nothing else happens, you may officially go to sleep until you hear the piano again. I would hope that as a result of today's message, that we as a local church would view the challenges that grow out of our church's growth would no longer be viewed with frustration like we do the traffic cones in our city, but they would now be viewed with faith that, God, you're doing something. You're increasing capacity. You're expanding our ability. You're enabling us to accommodate more people while yet heading in the same direction, and that's toward the kingdom you may go to sleep. The rest of this could be slightly inconsequential. So what are some of the ways that we are being taught by this story to navigate 
some of the unique challenges that come with growing churches. Well, the very first verse, now in these days, these days in the local church, in the first century church, are marked by rapid and exponential growth, increase in popularity and criticism. I mean, just a few chapters ago, the disciples were wildly uncertain of themselves, but yet met by the Lord Jesus Christ and said that when I go, the Holy Spirit will come and you will be filled with the Spirit and enabled and empowered to be witnesses to me and to the uttermost parts of the world, but starting right where your feet are now. And, it be, and as soon as they begin doing that, the day of Pentecost occurs and the whole world, multiple cultures, the known world, the broader reach world in, in, in their context, converges on Jerusalem and God takes advantage of that stage and makes himself and his message and his son, the kingdom, center stage by allowing the disciples to then speak the wondrous works of God in the midst of this massive audience. And all of a sudden, these disciples who were sometimes defeated, sometimes frustrated, are now filled with courage and boldness. Just a chapter ago, these same disciples are ones who are standing before political leaders and preaching a very unpopular message in some of, front of some of the most powerful people in their culture and being arrested for it and then subsequently released and take joy in the fact that they had that challenge. Why? Because the gospel is growing in them and they view growing churches as being something that must also have its own fair number of challenges. Now in those days, these days of rapid growth, the Bible says that the disciples, so the number of people who align themselves with the Lord, who really do believe in his message, the number of disciples are rapidly increasing. So churches or the church isn't just increasing in a, a, a fandom or people who just kind of like it or want to look in on it, but it's increasing in the number of people, the number of converts who are coming to know the Lord. And as a result, the Bible says that a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows are being neglected in the daily distribution. Listen to me. Wherever multiple cultures occupy the same place, there will always be issues related to race. Wherever multiple cultures occupy the same space, there will be challenges related to race. Now notice, I didn't say that there would always be racism. But that could be there. But wherever multiple cultures, wherever groups of people of different types occupy the same spaces, there will be challenges related to race and culture, a.k.a. America. We occupy the same landmass, multiple cultures, and we always are having challenges. What a wonderful opportunity we have as a church to say to the world, look at what happens when multiple cultures converge on this space. Here's how we work through issues and challenges of race. That's how we can now have this unique and beautiful redeeming display that causes people to see Jesus as king. The way we manage those issues need to be different from how the world manages them. Well, what source material has the Bible given us to help us to do this? Well, first of all, I want you to take note, just kind of looking at the text of Scripture, how the Holy Spirit working through the pen of Luke, chooses not to obscure the details. Do you know how easy it would have been for Luke just to have written this, written, uh, 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 this text of Scripture we just read to read the following way? And in those days, the church was growing in popularity and growing wildly. 
And every once in a while, there were some issues that arose, but they uh, brought in a couple of guys to help them fix the issues and serve food the way they always did. And then the church and its disciples lived happily ever after. But no, the Holy Spirit wanted us to see the specific ethnic and cultural contours. They wanted us to understand the specific conflict that was occurring in the church. The church does not have to hide from ugly issues. The, the, the Holy Spirit fully baptizes us into this reality and says there is a complaint by not just some, but by Hellenists, people who have a Greek orientation. There's a complaint by them against people who are Hebrews who have a Jewish orientation. There are racial and cultural implications. There is a group of people who saying we are being underserved by a particular cultural group, and we have an issue with it. And it is happening within the framework of the church. And the Holy Spirit wants us to see that. The Bible is not negative about it, though. It just gives us the facts. It doesn't impose a judgment. It doesn't, it doesn't tell us that the people complaining or the ones being complained against are somehow evil or bad or out of place or operating in privilege or underestimating this or trying to suppress or have their feet on the necks of this group. It doesn't tell us that these people are, are getting out of hand. It doesn't assign moral judgment against any of the groups. It just describes the reality of what it is. There was a complaint that arose. The Bible equally is not naive. It doesn't, it doesn't suggest that this issue doesn't need to be addressed and all the church has to do is just, just preach and this thing is just going to evaporate. But the Bible is intentional in teaching us how to navigate this with a kingdom first focus and mentality. And when we get to verse 12 or get to verse 2, you'll see exactly what the church is called to do. But first, note this, kingdom first people must have a word first mindset. Kingdom first people must have a word first mindset. In other words, if God is so gracious to give us a word that'll get into the gritty details of these issues, then kingdom first people need a word first mindset. We don't need to go anywhere else to find the solutions. Kingdom first people need a word first mindset. Second Timothy chapter three, verses 16 and following, you hear me talk about this on a regular basis. That the word of God in its own self-testimony is good for doctrine, reproof, correction, instruction in righteousness, so that to the end that we will be thoroughly furnished for every good work. Every good work, every good work, every good work, every good work. But what does that text actually mean? It means that as an order of magnitude, when I go to my scriptures, when I go to the Bible, if I'm a word first person and I'm a kingdom first person, a kingdom first guy, when I bring a problem to the text, I'm looking for doctrine. What does the scripture say about God himself? What is the Savior saying about himself? Reproof. What is the scripture saying about my sin? Correction. What is it saying about my need for course correction or my need for further sanctification? How do I, in this moment, with the scenario that I'm bringing, need to have my heart and focus further sanctified to look more like the Savior? And then, how does the Scripture address my situation? What is the instruction in righteousness? I believe that that order is necessary because if I go to the Scripture with my circumstances, but I'm not going to see what the Father is saying about himself and about my sin and about the nature of the Savior, I am going to elevate my issue above the interests of Scripture. 
And then the Bible says, all right, well then once I've addressed the, uh, I've, here's what the Bible says about the Savior, what it says about my sin and what it says about my need for sanctification and how I need to be transformed. And then it looks into the specifics and says, here, here is what I say about your situation. It then says, and now here is how we want you to be switched on in your service so that you're thoroughly furnished for this work. Kingdom first people have a word first mindset. Verse 2, and the 12 summoned the number of disciples, and the 12, the 12 summoned the full number of disciples and said, it is not right that we should give up preaching the word to serve tables. Therefore, find brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the Holy Spirit and of wisdom, who, will, who we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to the ministry of prayer and the ministry of the word. This is so interesting. Here's one of the things that we as a church must be very careful to do if we're going to navigate the challenges of growing churches is that wherever there are competing priorities, we must safeguard against creeping priorities. Has anybody ever heard the phrase mission creep? Yeah, 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 mission creep. So you send a military uh, detachment to a particular region of the world to address an issue. Maybe it starts out as peacekeeping, and then the situation around the soldiers begins to evolve and change, and all of a sudden the mission turns into capture and recover. Then it turns into something else, and then it turns into something else, and then eventually you have this lengthy occupation and you forget why you originally came, we as a church cannot afford to get involved in mission creep. There will always be competing priorities, and therefore we must make sure we don't have creeping priorities. And that's what the disciples and the apostles in particular are modeling for us right here. They are not ignoring the issue and all of its implications, but what they do understand is one of its primary implications is that the temptation is to play a game of whack-a-mole. Have you ever been over to um, whack-a-mole? You ever been to that place where the little heads are popping up, you got the little hammer, and all of a sudden you lose sight of why you're really there because you're trying to just smack and hit all of the most recent issues that are hot and now. The church can't afford to do that if it's going to be focused on kingdom first people. The Bible says that the 12 called the full complement of disciples. So what is their approach? It's increased collaboration. They want to bring more people into the conversation. One of the reasons that we as a local church practice a plurality of eldership, a pastoral plurality, is because we want, uh, we want more than one qualified person in the room. The reason that we have multiple layers of leadership is because we recognize that, that there, is, there is a certain beauty in that kind of ministry. We want increased collaboration. But even with increased collaboration, we want increased clarification. Notice that when the full complement of disciples, both the 12 who were apostles and the larger body of disciples came together, the first order of business was to say, listen, here are the priorities. We are going to preach and we are going to be in prayer. We will not leave that to go do this. What must we do to solve this problem? Increase clarification. And then there is a clear delineation of assignment. Now, what I find to be curious and interesting about this text is that they said, we won't leave the word and prayer to go serve tables, to distribute food, find for us people who are full of the Holy Spirit and of wisdom. Why? Don't you just need people who know how to carry several trays of fajitas from the, from the kitchen to the table without dropping them? 
Don't you need that? Don't you need somebody who can, can, can give like five different cups of water and hold their notepad in their mouth and go back and forth to the kitchen? Why do you need people who are filled with the Spirit? Why? Because in the church, we recognize that character and commitment to Christ, devotion and disciple-making, they are Trump's competence. Yes, we need people with skills, but we also need to know that we need to be kingdom-first people are spirit-filled in how they use their skill. Kingdom-first people want to be spirit-filled in even how they use their skill regardless of the skill. Why? Because deacons, these proto-deacons, these first deacons, these deacon, these diaconal archetypes, these success profiles that we're seeing are showing us that even whether I am managing projects, managing property, or managing small teams of people, I still need to be grounded in and, dr and driven by the Holy Spirit in the way that I do my work. Why? Because the Bible tells us in other places, Colossians chapter 3, verse 23, that no matter what it is that I'm doing, that I need to do it in a way that is oriented toward the Lord. That even in what I view to be the most basic and mundane occupations, I need to do it with a kingdom-first orientation. I need to work like I have a boss who's not in the office down the hall or who happens to be out of town. I need to work like I have a boss in heaven who's watching my every move. And so, gospel growth or growing in the gospel is not just important for those who teach and share the gospel. It's also important for those who are showing the gospel through the ways that we serve. If we are not filled with the Spirit, the way that we address issues of race and economics and culture what inevitably will occur in a church as beautifully diverse as ours. We'll address those issues purely from a sociological perspective and not from an eternal and a spiritual perspective if we're not careful. That's why every one of us needs to pursue being filled with the Spirit because we want to be grounded in a kingdom-first focus and agenda. Verses 5 and 6. And they said, oh, excuse me, and what they said pleased the whole gathering, and they chose. Here comes, the, here comes the, the juicy part. You ready? And they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and the Holy Spirit. They want to underscore that this is the, you know, the, they meet this criteria. They chose Stephen, a man full of faith and the Holy Spirit, and Philip, Prochorus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenius, and Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch. Let those names wash over you real quick. It wasn't Joshua. It wasn't John. It wasn't Jonah. It wasn't Elias. All seven of them are Greek. In other words, the apostles addressed the problem that has specific cultural implications, but they didn't lead first with the culture convo. They led first with the character issues. Let's make sure we choose people who have the appropriate character and the appropriate commitment to the things of God. And then by virtue of order of magnitude, let's make sure that we have the right folks who have the right incarnational witness who can connect well with those that they are serving. Because that's who the Hellenistic widows were. They were those who were of Greek. They were Greek in their orientation. 
And so what I believe we learn from this text is that whoever is selected to serve sees the assignment as also being incarnational. What do I mean? I hope the word incarnational resonates with you deeply because it is one of the great reflections of the gospel. The Lord Jesus Christ, as his target audience, had human beings, and therefore he came in human form. God saw our issues as one that he, as the boundless, spiritual, eternal God, needed to come in an incarnate context, but not just visit us in fleshly form, but to also walk with us and work through fleshly issues alongside us. Being incarnate, being embedded, being embodied in the things that impact the people who you came to seek, save, and serve is important to God. Therefore, it needs to be important to churches that have a kingdom-first mindset. May we always commit ourselves to having people who look just like our community, who are serving well and faithfully in various roles. That is a priority of ours. You too, as a church, recognize that you are part of the great incarnational witness to this community. How beautiful is it that a person could walk in off the street from Avondale Estates peep into these pews and pan the audience for just a second and see someone who looks exactly like them by virtue of ethnicity and age. And if we were all wearing our W-2s on our chest, they could also find somebody who also met their same economic strata. And we want that. We want that because that incarnational embeddedness in our community gives us just access to people who who will not look at us and say, hey, man, you don't understand me. You don't understand my issues because of X. No, we are uniquely and beautifully and wonderfully equipped and have such an opportunity to do great work in this community. Let us not forsake our incarnational witness but let it be grounded in a devotion to first things, the kingdom first. Let it be grounded in a disciple-making mindset. Let it be grounded in things that matter to God first. Now I want you to notice also something else about this text. And what they said pleased the whole gathering, and they chose Stephen and Philip, and I went through the whole list of Greek names, but I want you to notice that the Bible decides to double down and let us know that they were filled with the Spirit. Why was that necessary? Weren't they just going to serve tables? Well, don't you also see that the Lord chose to use Stephen and Philip later in Scripture? Their names appear again. Stephen would also be our very first martyr. And he went down swinging, not with fists, but with faith. If you remember, as they were stoning Stephen, this is a man who was so full of the Spirit that he was even preaching as they were stoning Later, we would find Philip, who would be noted in the Scripture as an evangelist. So note that the reason that we want people at every level of the church to be filled with the Spirit is because we never know when the Lord is going to call your number to do another kind of work from the post where you sit. We want to be people who are kingdom first, regardless of how the Lord may call us to serve. And so kingdom first people understand that prayer is crucial to their tool set. So kingdom first people want to be spirit-filled in how they use their skill set, but they recognize that amongst their tool set, prayer needs to be there. 
Prayer as a tool set punctuates the armor. Notice that in Ephesians chapter 6, which we all love to go to to talk about spiritual warfare and things that are happening in heavenly places, and we've sent our kids there to memorize the different pieces of the armor, but then at the end of that same text, it tells us that that same soldier needs to be busy about praying at all times with all kinds of prayer. It's like underneath the armor, there has to be something else happening, and yet something else is he needs to be, she needs to be deeply skilled in a life of prayer. We also see that depicted in the text because it says that these very people who were brought before the apostles with these unique and great skills were people who they prayed for and they laid their hands on them, not just as a function of ceremony, because prayer matters deeply, and I hope you feel that in our community of faith here at Gospel Hope Church. Let's close this up. Take a look at verse 7, the icing on the cake, or maybe the cake itself. And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. Now, in the first verse, we were made aware of the fact that the church was increasing in the number of disciples that resulted in both Hellenist, Greek people, and Jewish people coming to faith. And then as the church increases its capacity to serve all people well with spirit-filled people in the right roles, it says that the church is now growing exponentially even more so. So having the right people in the right roles causes the church to grow in the right way and has these unbounded exponential kinds of growth because it now says that priests, people who from their upbringing have been trained to be locally and narrowly focused on a very particular expression of the faith, now find themselves becoming obedient, not to the faith in which they were raised, but into the one that they've now been exposed because they're hearing and seeing the gospel grow greatly. I want you to understand that. You, this, this isn't... I don't know of, a, of an appropriate uh, 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 contemporary equivalent to a Jewish priest turning from that occupation and then deciding to be earnest and, be, and become obedient to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Maybe in your life, one of the most radical transformations you've seen is an atheist who comes to faith and now preaches the gospel. Maybe a Jehovah's Witness, maybe someone from a, from a Mormon distinction. I don't know what it was, but someone who was just completely moving in the opposite direction. But I believe what the Bible desires to see is that the growth of the church is exponential and unbounded. It isn't just increasing in number, but it's also increasing in the, in the types of people who are coming to faith. People that you formerly would have thought were totally cold to the gospel and untouchable, would have no interest in it, who have high risk and a lot to lose, are turning toward the faith and becoming devoted to it. Why does this happen? One simple gesture, a growing church with growing challenges, choosing to address that challenge in a kingdom first way, putting the right people in the right roles, causing the church to grow in the right way. It increased, it multiplied, and even this new distinction of folks, priests became obedient. Uh, I said it earlier and I'll say it again. I believe one of, the, one of the most beautiful gospel illusions or reflections or echoes in the text is seeing those seven Greek deacons 
who are filled with the Spirit now be deployed to serve and how that increased the church's capacity to still continue to preach and teach, but at the same time enabled it to also continue to reach people of all types. We as a local church are on the precipice with this merger of being in a similar position. The merger for, for, for prayerfully, as we've looked at this, uh, we believe increases our capacity. But this isn't a message about the merger. But I do want you to understand that it's one of our traffic cones. It's a crane in the background of our church. It's a thing that if you look at it, you can go, oh, I'm so tired of hearing about it. It was like, oh, when is it going to be over? Oh, do we really have to? These are traffic cones. But when the cones are gone, our capacity is increased. But beyond that, what about you in your life? I don't know where you are uh, in your walk with the Lord or your investigations of who he, who he is, whether you as a sit here as a person on the outside just kind of peering in. And you're saying, hmm, that's a curious notion, an incarnational faith, how, 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 how this church has now dropped into your backyard or your neighborhood. I don't know how you came to be a visitor, but here you are. Man, if the Lord has met you at your address and something about today's message is causing something to stand up in your heart, you can't quite put your finger on it, but you're like, you know, I need to investigate this more clearly. I've attended church here or there. But I didn't believe that Jesus was necessarily for me. I thought it was for people of a particular type. And you're starting to change your opinion on that. I'd love to have a talk with you if you've never given your life to Jesus, you've never trusted him as your savior. Even if what I'm saying as the gospel sounds like a foreign language, you thought it was just a certain type of songs or maybe a certain group of books in the Bible. And you just heard me say that the gospel is actually the good news of Jesus Christ, God himself lovingly coming into the human situation, meeting us right where we are, dying for our sins and showing us how to live life and then being raised on our behalf and providing eternal life to all those who place faith in him. If you're hearing that for the first time or you're hearing it for the 15th time, but now it's starting to resonate, I'd love to talk to you if you've never trusted that message as being for you. Maybe you've already trusted the message as being for you, but you have lived for quite some time at distance from the local church because you saw churches having challenges. And those challenges challenged your commitment to it. You thought that the challenges of the church were somehow indicative of its brokenness and a reason that you shouldn't be a part of it. And maybe you're hearing in this message now, wait a minute. Man, when I understand the church for what it really is, it is going to have challenges because growing churches have challenges. It's going against the grain. It's a cultural, it's a culture of contrast. And you're saying, you know what, Lord? I'm sorry for abandoning your bride and leaving the local church because it wasn't working perfectly as I planned or as I expected it to, I'm recognizing now that, that, that challenges are part and parcel of church growth. Man, if that's you, I'd love to talk to you. I'm gonna pray with you too, just here from the stage. And maybe uh, that's not your story, neither one of them. Perhaps your story is simply this. 
I am just looking for a church that is putting the kingdom first. And I'm hearing something today that, that, that ferments for me in my mind or that, that makes it firm for me that this is a kingdom first church that is putting the right things out front. I want to be a part of this and I want to row with people who are living like this and thinking about the gospel like that. If that's you, I want to pray with and for you. As a matter of fact, Father, in the name of Jesus, You've heard the groups that I've just kind of called out. I may not have, I know I haven't, in my limited perspective, reached into every group. But Lord God, as you inventory the room and you understand the needs of the hearts, I am begging and asking that those who need to make some kind of move toward you would not be afraid to do so. Lord God, they don't have to come down to the altar, but Lord God, I pray that they are in the privacy of their own hearts, praying a prayer, uh, asking you to save them from their sin if they are sitting at a distance from you. I pray for the person, Lord God, who has lived at distance from the local body, even though they may have been living in, in somewhat of a relationship with you, that that person is coming back to the local church. I pray for that person, oh God, for that new adjustment in perspective. And I pray for the person who just says, you know what, I'm looking for a place to row hard and put the kingdom first and to go to work and to see the gospel expanded. Lord God, I pray for that person that if this is the right place for them, that they would be bold and comfortable to make that known. Lord God, you know who your people are. You know who these people are. Would you appeal to their hearts in an undeniable way that lets them know that you hear them and you see them. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. If you fall in any one of those categories, I would love to have a conversation with you after service. Feel free to, to seek me out. I'd love to talk to you. Amen. Let's worship the Lord.